Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. What shall we talk about tonight? Uh, intellectuals. What is an intellectual? So I'd like to start at the most more abstract level of there are different kinds of concepts, and we might ask what kind of a concept do we want for here? So dictionaries will give us a definition of this term as, say, somebody who, you know, deals in ideas, and that's useful for that sort of purpose, but I'm guessing you want a different kind of a concept. So one kind of concept we could have is maybe a brand promise, like a description of what it is we are promising to our customers as as uh, as the producers of some sort of product. Another thing might be a sort of a, a community promise, that is, if I am with you in the same community, what are we agreeing to to do together? What What is our promises to each other? Or it could be like a personal goal statement. <laughs> if I'm declaring myself to be an intellectual, what sort of goal have I just, just declared myself to pursue? These are at least three different examples of different kinds of concepts you might be looking for. Did you have one of these in mind? Well, so just with the de definition, just while you were talking, I went and Googled it. <laughs> and um, so there's sort of unhelpful ones like possessing a developed, uh, someone with a developed intellect or something. Right. But um, Wikipedia has an interesting definition, which says, an intellectual is a person who engages in critical thinking, research, and reflection about the reality of society. That phrase is weird. <laughs> and who proposes solutions for the normative problems of society. Okay. I think that's interesting because what I really wanted to discuss with you is the sort of the question, is an intellectual somebody who tries to understand things or is an intellectual somebody who tries to make changes in the world? And those really seem, and, and I thought right. I was, if I looked up the definition, it was going to say, yeah, it's just the first thing. <laughs> okay. But it's interesting to me, Wikipedia is kind of siding with you a bit, though it's only siding with you by means of an and that connects two things that right. I see as but really quite but, you know, I might just say, look, there are many different people who can have many different goals and many different things they achieve, you know, on purpose and accidental. Why do we have to pick the purpose or the function of an, an intellectual? That, that's why I was trying to dis distinguish these different kinds of concepts. You might think, well, if we are making a brand promise, for example, uh, then we need to figure out what it is we are promising to do for people. Uh, they, they come to a university, they, we need to tell them what to expect. And if they come and get something different than they expect, they may complain that we have misled them. <laughs> or if you hire me for a job in your school, and I think it means one thing and you think it means another thing, then maybe we will you know, be at cross purposes trying to coordinate together. Those would be reasons why we might need to agree on something. Are, are those the kinds of things you have in mind? Well, so if I can take address generally this issue that we disagreed about and talked about before, where you don't like how I always wanted to use one purpose for everything. I've been thinking about this. And I think it's um, it's sort of related to the project of idealization, the idea that we're looking for an ideal version of, of things. Like in for many roles and institutions in society, we want them to be perfect. We want them to be as good as they could possibly be, right? Those are not this quite the same perfect and as good as they can possibly be. But let's say we're always wanting to improve them. And in wanting to improve something means moving it towards some kind of ideal. And you really only get an ideal if you have some unified um, conception of like a single goal that it's after, that it could then do perfectly. You could have multiple goals, right? It's like, if you wanted to get the perfect bicycle, right? And you wanted, you know, you're searching and uh, you put a lot, invest a lot of energy into like, do I want it to be made out of steel or titanium? And, uh, and then you might, as you're working on this, realize, well, you use bicycles for two different things. You use them in order to like commute to work. And then you also like go, do mountain biking. And then you might be like, well, actually I need two bicycles. Um, uh, I need, you know, the, um, uh, the right. perfect commuting bike and the perfect mountain bike or something they might not be the same bike um and uh and you might even get to a point where you're like yeah but i can only buy one bike <laughs> and so i need sure. to be thinking about you know what, it what as are you going to use it for but different people might use them for different things so they don't have to agree on what the perfect use is so you and i might use universities or libraries for different things and is that okay i mean i 
I guess like I don't um uh I don't take myself to be passing judgment on what people might use something for. Like here's a pen, right? You might use it to give an example of the color light blue, right? Sorry, people who can't see what I'm doing, but it's a light <laughs> yeah. blue pen. Uh and that's you know, you can use it for that. Yeah, but like pens are for writing and they're gonna be optimized for writing. Um and uh they but but and many so things can be used for multiple purposes and are optimized for multiple purposes. That is, uh, there are many kinds of things that we design to make sure they can be used in multiple ways. Right, and so so I, I'm fine with saying like with saying there are multiple ideals that we have to be thinking about here, multiple purposes. Um, it, as long as those purposes like don't conflict too much, because if they conflict a lot, we would then want like two different things to do those two different jobs, right? Like if what it took for a good have a good commuting bike was just really in tension with what it took to have a good right. mountain bike. You just want to get two bikes if possible. Um, uh, so yeah, but like, I think, you know, uh, I mean, even just finding one purpose is kind of an achievement. Um, like one purpose where were you to optimize and tailor something to ideally fulfill that purpose, you would know that you were getting something good that you were improving the thing. That's already a, ch- a challenge. Well, um, we could easily so- list some of the social functions that people called intellectuals uh, appear to be able to serve in a larger society. We could probably list a half dozen or a dozen of them. Um, and then, you know, I might be willing to accept all of them as, you know, some sort of function that's is okay for somebody to pursue. And then I might wonder which which ones I want to be closer to. That is, uh, if some people are focused on some of them or others, maybe I have a preference and I would like to be that kind of intellectual, but I might not complain if the other people are called intellectuals. Uh, So, you know, for example, one function of intellectuals is to uh, teach and to help students sort of show themselves to employers as good job candidates and to show off that ability and other the functions of teachers might be to allow people to be knowledgeable and impressive in cocktail party conversations later in life. And uh, some kinds of intellectuals help people find out about news and what's happening lately. Um, some kind of intellectuals help people maybe understand in practical sense the, the world they're in, in terms of the physical devices in the social worlds and, and things they're around. Other people help people understand maybe more grand cosmology outside their practical concerns. Um, You know, some intellectuals advance perhaps the state of the art or the frontiers of knowledge. Other people make sure that we don't forget what we once knew. Some people try to better summarize what we know so that it can be more easily communicated to a wider audience. Some people try to go back and challenge things we thought we knew to make sure maybe... uh, see if they're wrong. Other people maybe just practice the sparring and of, of arguing and help other people learn to, to spar and argue in, in wider context. And, you know, these are, I've just listed, you know, presumably what will be familiar things that people called intellectuals often do and that have some value in the larger world. So I feel that was a really like pluralistic speech, but at other times when I talk to you about like uh, intellectuals who are mostly interested in cocktail party conversations and in coming off in a certain way, like you don't seem very approving of that. So maybe you're like approving of it right now, but um, it, when you talk about like in other conversations we've had about like the idea that there are intellectual norms, uh, that is, uh, in fact, you seem to think there are, spe- there are special norms for intellectuals that are going to cover all, like the whole class of intellectuals, right? And I don't think you're primarily thinking about cocktail party conversations. Um, uh, like credit. I mean, I, that's something I want to talk about is, even though we've talked about it right. before, it's like intellectual credit, right? In a cocktail party, you might not give that much credit or you might give the kind of credit that would give end up giving you more credit in the cocktail party conversation. Um, but there, we don't generally do citations during cocktail parties. So uh, like when you're thinking about what are the appropriate norms for intellectuals, like I take it you're not thinking about the cocktail parties and you're probably not even thinking about the people who keep the older stuff alive. Well, those are kind of my people. Um, but you're like, you know, like here's here's how I would capture um, your sense of what an intellectual is. Uh, 
uh, it's in another conversation, we talked about like how you go around and you ask people, what's the biggest question in your field? And then you like, uh, look down on them if they don't have an answer and they're not working on it. Okay. Like only a very peculiar kind of intellectual, namely you like thinks in that way, right? Most people don't care. Most intellectuals don't, as a matter of fact, um, care about what's the most important question in their field, at least according to you in terms of your researches of asking this to people and they're not pursuing it. Right. But still you want to say, yeah, but that's, you want to get some purchase, some normative purchase on the concept of intellectual to be able to say, don't do the cocktail party thing. Don't do the like competitive publication thing. Instead do my thing of finding the important questions. And it's that, that's the Robin I want to talk to about intellectuals, not the pluralist Robin who accepts everything. So, you know, it's about what I want to do and who I want to do it with. And that's separate than what this word intellectual means. And so I am in general like forgiving and encompassing about words, perhaps, uh, but want to be more particular about my allies or associates or people that I'm like doing things with. Um, so I might say, I want there to be a community of people who uh, see their project as um, together knowing things and learning things. And that's not just a side effect of other things they do, you know, the sense which the, the community I'm interested in is more self-consciously trying to together know and learn things. And um, that that's what justifies perhaps a number of intellectual norms with respect to that community. Like, uh, so so one norm might be, well, be honest about what you know or don't know. Uh, don't 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 pretend to know things you don't know. I say, uh, and for example, if uh, you see a critique of a claim you've made, and uh, it makes solid points, then you should admit those solid points, not just uh, you know change the discussion or something, but acknowledge when somebody's made a good point. Uh, and even if you make a point, for example, but you know where it came from, you might acknowledge your source. That's another kind of norm sorry, related to credit. Um, so those are some of the norms that I might, you know, support within a community who saw itself as, you know, trying to collectively know and learn. Now, it's open to the question, what are we trying to know or learn? Like within all the space of things we could be trying to know or learn, what are our priorities? And then I see a space for like, we can be trying to learn different things, but still work together. We don't all have to agree necessarily about that. But I do think we often do agree substantially on many kinds of priorities. And then we can, you know, use those shared priorities to critique, say, uh, the priorities of efforts, you know, which kind of things getting more attention, which kind of methods are used, which kind of resources go where. Is that help okay. as a? I have like a bu I have a bunch of questions going in a different direction. Let me just start with, I, I do want to ask you about the relationship between this um, utopia that you've described and like the world that we live in, and because I think you do try to get purchase on the act that people who call themselves intellectuals. But before I do that, uh I want to ask about just a little aside you made about how like, well, if you, if you have an idea that you're putting forward and then somebody else has put it forward before you'd give them credit uh, and you would acknowledge your source. That's it. You've acknowledged your source now. And you also said like, if somebody makes an, a good argument against you, you would be honest about that. And so the second thing being like, Oh, here's an argument against me. I could well see how that furthers the project of this community, the soul loan project as you've just described it, which is trying to learn and know. Right. Um, it furthers that project if I'm like honest about arguments against me, because that helps us all figure out whether or not I'm right or wrong. Um, but there's a question, how does it help for me to acknowledge my source? If I give you an idea, but Aristotle said it before me, uh, uh, or, um, Robin said it before me and I'm talking to somebody else. Right. And I don't give you credit or I don't give Aristotle credit. Um, so like I could see in certain contexts, right, in publication, it will often be intellectually useful to make references. Um, 
you may want to read Robin on this because here's some other interesting and relevant ideas. So like I get that, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about credit, specifically credit. It seems to me that credit on your view will like, I would anticipate that you would think it's important because it creates incentives. But it creates incentives for people who care about credit. Uh, And I thought you said that this group of people, what unifies them is that they want to know and learn. So are you saying these group of people, they want to know and learn and also they want credit? And if that's true, couldn't we just define a slightly more utopian group of intellectuals, the ones who actually just want to know and learn and are not and don't want credit? And don't we not want to be in that other group? Once we're being utopian, why not go all the way? So we have to be opportunistic about the available communities to join. Uh, we can't just define an ideal community and join it. It may have no members. So uh, when we are trying to do things together with others, we have to ask which others are willing to do what and mm-hmm. compromise in terms of finding people who are you know, the best combination of they're close enough to what we want to do and they're able to do it with us. And uh, even if that's not who we might choose if we could create people, but we we can't create people. So, you know, I would say uh, this is, of course, larger true in the rest of society, right? We might say, well, we want in society in general, we want you know everybody to be happy and productive and prosperous, etc. But we expect that while we all, to some degree, you know, have good feelings toward everybody else and want everybody else to uh, you know prosper. We, we all selfishly want things for ourselves more. And so part of the challenge of designing social institutions is to find ways to harness this collective interest to create incentives so that we can then harness our private interests in the promotion of our collective interests. That is, we, we typically don't believe that most everybody merely wants to promote these collective interests. We accept that most of the people available to us will primarily have strong you know desires and personal goals that they would often be willing to promote at the expense of collective interest if it was a big enough gain and so we are trying to find ways to coordinate our incentives so that the net effect of each of us pursuing relatively selfish goals with a modest bit of collective uh, goals mixed in can together produce, you know, that we all achieve our collective goals. So you're very understanding about people who are like, look, this whole like knowing and learning thing, that's not enough for me. I also need credit. And you're like, that's fine. I'm going to make sure you get some chance for some credit too. But what if I say to you, look, I like this knowing and learning thing, but this whole being honest about when I'm wrong thing, that's like a little hard for me. I'm just a little bit selfish. And so like, are you also going to be understanding in that case and say, well, I mean, maybe what you want to say is like, look, we can't expect people to actually admit when they're wrong about stuff. Cause that's just like asking too much to be realistic. People aren't going to expect admit when they're wrong. And so instead we need to create like, you know, some kind of complex structure where we kind of check each other or we shame each other or whatever. Right. Uh, like, like, is that how you'd want to go with that? Or would you actually want these intellectuals to hold themselves to this norm of admitting when you're wrong. And if you, and if you do want to hold your, you, if you do want to select the people who would hold themselves to admitting when they're wrong, again, why not select the people who uh, don't care that much about credit and care about knowing and learning? You're right that um, in order for us to achieve these collective goals together, we accept that we all have pretty strong selfish interests and of, of a wide range of sorts. And so we are looking to, create institutions, including norms, such that they not only, when enforced, produce the better outcome, but that are actually feasible to enforce. And that's a strong constraint on which norms we should consider. Uh, But, for example, if you, um, say, present an idea and you give both positive and negative aspects of it, we might find that more believable than if you only give positive aspects. We might, if if you regularly make a habit of saying, here's an idea and I only see positives, and then we can easily point out negatives to you that you probably should have been able to see, then we can start to perhaps mildly ridicule you for your 
inability to see what the rest of us think you should be able to see, which is a way of enforcing the norm that, hey, acknowledge the negatives as well as the positives. So that's an example of a norm that is, in fact, enforceable. Right. I mean, like, I have to say that I think that um, nobody ever acknowledges the negatives, really, or extreme. It's extremely rare. Here's what they do that looks a lot like that. And this is what I do. Suppose I give an argument. I'll be like, now, here are the apparent counter arguments against me. But here's how I respond to them. And in the end, right, at the end, right. I'm always winning. <laughs> uh, and But that counts uh, and, according and, to the and, norm. That that counts because yes, like counts. Uh, all I've done, I haven't admitted that I was wrong. I've just admitted no. that I might have appeared to be wrong, but actually in the end, I'm right. But that's not I might what we're be wrong. In. I mean, I might no, actually be wrong. No, but what you're we're just interested in, instead of making us go find the plausible counter arguments, we expect you to point them out to us. And so pointing them out and then giving re- re- responses to them is fine because you've done the work of pointing them out. So does the I collective done the work of pointing out the ones I don't have a response to. Well, uh, to the extent we can see those and perhaps see that you didn't point them out, then we can, in fact, ridicule you that. So again, it's all going to be you know, a matter of difficulty of enforcement. But say the way we enforce the credit norm is that uh, if we can find a source that seems to have you know, pre- preceded your expression of an idea, and it seems to be one that you should have been able to find had you do the usual amount of searching that you were supposed to do, then we can complain about that. So again, uh, in general, we'll have to define norms and enforce them uh, when we can see a process by which it would be feasible to enforce it. So it seems to me that these two norms are at a very, these two norms, namely, um, like, be honest about counterarguments and give credit are at a very different level, where the give credit one is a kind of concession to the fact that people don't necessarily really want to be intellectuals. Whereas the um, uh, be honest one is just part of what it is to be an intellectual and give counter arguments. Right. So the, 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 the more, the closer parallel to the credit one would be something like shame people who don't give counter arguments or something, or, you know, um, there, that would be like a, a concession. Uh uh, to people who don't have the sort of properly intellectual motive, but like caring about credit is not a properly intellectual motive. That is caring about it. Like if we could be pure intellectuals, we wouldn't care about credit. I, I, I'm, I'm asserting you can, you can re- reply. I think this is not true. Right. That is, that it doesn't have anything to do with trying to learn and know to get credit. Um, I'm just like caring about being shown to be wrong is not uh, has nothing to do with being intellectual. That is being averse to being shown to be wrong is not a proper state of an intellectual, though we're human. So we might be averse. And so then we have to make these concessions, but there, so there, there are norms like give credit and shame people who don't give counter arguments, but there are different norms like be honest and give counter arguments where the second set of norms are proper to intellectuals. They're, they're part of what it is to be, to have intellectual goals. And I would want to distinguish those things. I don't mind you're making those distinctions. I'm just not sure it's very useful in the process of designing, you know, academic or intellectual institutions. Um, so th- that is, you know, we have a var- variety of institutions we've seen in history, a variety of arrangements, a variety even of, mm-hmm. of community norms. And uh, we have some sense of which ones seem to have been more effective and for what reasons. And, you know, that's where most of the action is, I would think, in in picking among the various options we can imagine for what the norm should be. You can give the different norms different names according to their correspondence of some ideal person who had no need for institutions to get them to do the best stuff, but that's just almost never an option. So we don't think in those terms that much. I think the way to think about it is just to think modally about like different worlds with intellectuals in them. And I could just well imagine a world with intellectuals where nobody cared about credit. Uh, in fact, I believe such worlds have existed, some worlds. Um, um, but they, th- their incentives to participate in intellectual, like they're still human. So they still had like, they needed to be selfishly uh, compensated, but they just weren't compensated that way. They were compensated in other ways. 
Um, whereas I can't imagine a world of intellectuals where there's no concern with whether or not you're honest, whether or not you give counterexamples, et cetera. And so that's why these norms seem very different. Like, just like we might say, look, we have a norm that intellectuals have certain buildings that they work in, right? And they, they're together in those buildings. That's true, but you could just imagine a world in which that's not the case. Again, I don't mind your making these distinctions, but I mean, you're not making a live proposal for what other you know, sets of norms we should have instead that would be more effective. So uh, that's where I think the action is, is what, if you don't, if you don't like an existing set of norms, propose a different one, set of ones, but that's where we are. Well, there's a, I, I, I uh, the reason I'm interested in that is I, I'm interested in the, as I as I hinted early on with the Wikipedia definition, I'm interested in what I take to be maybe a divide between being an intellectual and being an activist. So let's just say um, an activist is somebody who seeks change, is trying to bring about change in the world, and um, is going to want to do what it takes to bring about such change. And they're not going to want to do what it takes, obviously, if the cost of doing that is greater than the benefit to be achieved by the change, right? So suppose I'm an activist and I want to like create a hospital somewhere, but like in order to make the hospital, I have to like kill so many people that that's a greater number than the number that are going to be saved by my hospital. But like, okay, don't make the hospital, right? So the activist is getting, we're imagining a rational activist, right? Um, who understands trade-offs. But um, in principle, the activist will say, look, I mean, like all I want, I'm going to do whatever is, is going to make the world better place. And sometimes that might involve lying to people and being untruthful. In fact, it's rarely going to involve being 100% truthful about like counter arguments to my proposal, because those counter arguments might sort of distract people from the value of this, this proposal and stuff. And so, so it seems to me that, um, I, I, I mean, someone could be both an intellectual and an activist, um, but it seems to me those projects would somewhat pull them in different directions and they would pull them with different directions with respect to the norms that are core to being an intellectual, namely the honesty one. By contrast, if they only pull them in a different direction with respect to like tertiary norms, like give credit, you know, supposing act, suppose activists couldn't give credit, I'd be like, that's okay. You could be an activist and intellectual because giving credit is not that important to being intellectual, but being honest seems really important. So that's why that distinction is important to me. And I want to hear your thoughts about, well, uh, I don't, because I, I think just you don't think of yourself as an activist intellectual. You've made a distinction about why the credit norm is of a different category, but that doesn't mean it's less important. You just made the claim that it was less important, so you'd be willing to let go, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with it. I, I could still find it a very important norm, even if you've made a category distinction about it. So uh, but if we just go back to the to basics, uh, if we say, you know, we have this collective project of knowing and learning, and it seems to me that the, the most obvious natural reason why most people would buy into that collective project is because knowing and learning is useful for many things. So that's, of course, a, even a natural way to prioritize which things we want to know and learn is the various uses they can be put to. So um, it seems to me, therefore, from that conception of the collective project, we, of course, have to accept that there will be people concerned with how these things get used. And that's perfectly acceptable, as far as I'm concerned, to be uh, part of the motives for uh, being involved in this whole project. Nevertheless, we do have some norms with respect to activism. So, uh, for example, in, say, an academic paper, uh, it's completely acceptable, say, in the introduction to explain why you're interested in a question you pose <laughs> because of its practical applications to the world, but uh, if it seems that uh, your choice of an answer has been influenced by your priorities, then that's important to disclose. That is, we are suspicious of and disapproving of hidden influences on conclusions of posed questions uh, you know, based on people's differing, especially differing priorities. So that is, it's okay to choose a question or topic based on what you care about. But if you're doing, say, a statistical analysis or a game theory model or other sorts of things, once you make a sort of question that the question itself doesn't embed priorities, then we expect you to do that in a neutral way 
with respect to your priorities, i.e. just find out the truth. Don't you think there are hidden influences on all of our, everything we do, but specifically all of our research that are going to shape what research questions we ask and how we ask them? But if we can find that you, you know, somewhat consciously chose, say, one statistical method or one set of assumptions in order to get the answer that you wanted uh, with respect to your activism purpose and didn't disclose that, we we do disapprove of that. And that is a actually enforced norm in many areas that I've been involved in. I mean, there are lots of things that people, we also disapprove of people whose research um, uh, treads on uncomfortable political territory and gives the results we don't want. And that is an actually enforced norm in intellectual circles. So I'm arguing for this as a good norm. I'm saying it's a good norm. Okay. Okay. Well, so this is where we get back to, um, there was, there was, there was the pluralist Robin we encountered briefly in the early part of this conversation where he, like all intellectuals are, you know, you're kind of okay with all different intellectuals. And and now you, you gave this little, um, it's claim about like, well, this project is, is going to be useful. And then it's, it's, it's like of knowing and learning is, is supposed to be useful and we can prioritize by way of usefulness. And just uh, to flag, like some of the people that you describe, like the people keeping old stuff alive, if you ask them, are you primarily doing this because you see it as useful? They would say, no. Um, That is, those aren't the terms in which they think it's like important and valuable and important and valuable to know and intrinsically improves your life. But there isn't some other thing that you're supposed to use it for where like usually the idea that knowledge is useful is um, meant to uh, entail, it, it can be used by people who don't have the knowledge, right? So the knowledge of how to build an x-ray machine is useful to the patients who don't know how to build an x-ray machine. And for many of these sorts of, uh, the, the kind of intellectuals you were initially pluralist about, they're, um, they wouldn't say their knowledge is useful. What they would mean by that is that it doesn't, it may not have much value to the people who don't have the knowledge. Um, so like, you know, you're not just saying like, here are some norms. You're saying like, here's like the good norms and the good kinds of intellectuals. Um, but, but this is, uh, these two groups have a common purpose in this case. So, uh, this is part of like my talking about compromises. Uh, you could have one group of people who, whose main, you know, community purpose that they are interested in is the uses that the learning and knowledge can be put to. And you can have other people whose main interest in the community purpose is the personal, you know, enjoyment they will get out of knowing particular things that the community will produce. These two groups have a shared interest in policing and limiting the kinds of activist influence on conclusions drawn. Uh, So they don't have to disagree about those norms. And in fact, they, they, they share a lot of purposes and therefore can agree on a lot of norms uh, because, you know, their purposes are largely pretty well aligned. So it seems to me that um, there are lots of influences on intellectual activity that um, don't specifically track the project of knowing and learning. And one example we gave is credit, right? And it may be that by seeking credit, or by being careful to give credit, you make the project of knowing and learning harder. For instance, you have to constantly be like making all these references and I have to remember, oh wait, who said this? I better tell Robin because he's gonna be upset if I don't give credit, right? So credit can bog down the process. The credit giving can bog down the process of knowing and learning, but maybe we need to accept that. It's a cost, right? But we have to be realistic. Human beings don't just care about knowing and learning. They also care about credit. So even if we know and learn less than we would if we weren't giving credit, like from one point of view, like you want to be like, actually we're knowing and learning more on the whole because we're using these incentives. And, and so like, why can't the activists say the same thing? It's like, look, it's true. My activism is going to mean that we have some false falsity in our story, but look, the, the project of knowing and learning has to be fitted inside a society that that society is going to have values. And the people in the society need to be like, these intellectuals are good guys. They're not on the bad guy team. And every once in a while, we intellectuals need to show that we're on the good guy team by like having some results that say, here's what you wanted to hear. Look, I'm telling it to you. 
And that's just how to be realistic about the project of being an intellectual in a world that has other goals is you need to sometimes have some false activism results, just like you need to have sometimes you have to have some BS credit giving that doesn't really have much to do with the project of knowing and learning. How are these things different? Again, the fundamental choices between different sets of norms you could define. Um, you know, the standard, more common sets of norms today uh, distinguish, again, the purposes and reasons why you're motivated to do a particular research project and the conclusions you draw within that project. Um, and um, the using your activism to choose which projects to do but not using it to decide which conclusions you draw, if we believe that you are in fact following that norm, that allows people to believe the results of your research uh, and not be skeptical about it on the basis of its source um, and still allow you to prioritize things you care about. But the more that we believe that you allowed your activist priorities to influence the conclusions you drew in a particular analysis, not just the questions you ask, we are then no longer able to believe your answers. We could, if we shared your activism, decide that we wanted to believe it and therefore would believe it for the same reason you wanted to get those answers, but that's a somewhat different project. And if we encompass people with different activist priorities, uh, we are looking to sort of make peace among us so that we can work together. And uh, that would seem to be, we would want to distinguish again, you know, who does what for what priority reasons, but what conclusions draw. Again, if, if we can each trust people with different intellectual, or different activist priorities to still do each analysis in a way that, you know, is at least trying to not be overtly directly influenced by those activist priorities, then we can trust each other's work more. And so the judgment that I share is that that works better for us achieving our shared um, community goals of knowing and learning. So I think a lot of people think the way you can trust other people is if they have the right values. And they think the reason to have this activist influence on research is to help us trust each other. So like, it could just be that like, you're, um, you're so disposed that you give trust in different ways. Right. And they're like, look, trust is super important. And without trust, we can't work together as an intellectual community. And uh, part of how we establish trust is that sometimes we give some results that maybe are not perfect from the epistemic point of view, but show that we all have the right values. And that's how we know we're on the same page and we can trust each other. And yes, I'm going to grant that in terms of thinking about the project of no learning and knowing, we're, we're slightly making a little sacrifice there, right? But we're also making sacrifices when we give credit. We're wasting time to credit when we could be pursuing the project of learning and knowing. Um, and so, yeah, you can trust my results in a sense when I do this because you can trust that I'm like a good person and I have the right values. Yeah. So the word trust, you know, applies to a bunch of different things and, and, you know, I just want to make a clear distinction here. Um, there's, you have a paper say, and it says, I'm going to attack this problem. And then it draws a particular conclusion. And I meant, can I trust that conclusion to actually follow from that problem presentation and assumptions? That's what I meant by being able to trust you. Uh, when you say, you know, if I, you know, uh, acknowledge or support the proper activist causes, you can trust me. That's a different thing you're trusting me about. That's you're trusting me to be on your political side, but that's not trusting the particular results. So the, you know, you could trade one off against the other. And of course people do. People are, you know, are sometimes less accurate in particular things they say in order to be trusted by a group. So for you could think of a religious community who, you know, agrees together to spout various strange claims about supernatural events that happened in the past or even currently in order to trust each other as a community, but then they are in some sense less able to trust the particular supernatural claims they make, but they can more trust somebody, say, to help them in a car accident or if they were, you know, uh, to be disabled, et cetera, they can trust uh, some social uh, bonding and, and support for each other in that community, but that's different than trusting 
the particular claims. And so if our community is oriented around learning and knowing that's the thing that we are doing together, then when you, you know, when you pollute or taint that for some other purpose, which is not learning and knowing together, that's in some sense, you know, sacrificing the purpose of this community for some other purpose. Right. But I mean, um, um, you know, that was my argument with the credit thing, but you're like, look, even the learning and knowing that's not the end all be all. There's going to be more of all there's going to be. Right. I do not and, see and credit as really, a. I don't really see us sacrificing very much to give a credit. I'm sorry. It's just, it takes a bit of, you know, mentioning something that's not a large uh, onerous cost. Um, I, I don't see it as, as a large sacrifice that we are paying large costs for that and we are getting large benefits. So it seems like a relatively clear trade-off. I have pointed out to you a number of times where I've said things like, actually, Aristotle said this before you. And, uh, you know, the, and, and think, I could say to you, Robin, you failed to do your due diligence to look at all the possible people who might've come up with your ideas before you so that you could give them credit. That would be a massive project that you'd have to do to learn like a lot more of intellectual history, right? Maybe Leibniz came up with some idea that you just came up with before you did. In order to credit people, you have to do a certain kind of work to figure out who might've said what. So um, yeah, I do I do think it's a big project and it's, it's a project that is absolutely uh, shackles academia. That is where we're dragging these chains around us, articles just filled with references and crediting. Um, so I, I, I disagree that like, um, uh, that it is a small thing. Um, uh, it might just depend on sort of like your tastes for, you know, pe- people, there's a- quite a lot of difference between people as to like how much credit you need to give when. Here's the thing I've noticed. Um, for many people, if it was like a really long time ago, they don't care. They'll be really offended if you don't refer to someone who wrote in the past 50 years, even if they were somewhat obscure. But if you don't refer to somebody who wrote like 2000 years ago, even if they're really famous, that's, uh, that's fine. Right. Uh, and because it's a kind of jockeying for status and we're somehow not jockeying with Aristotle anymore. Um, uh, but anyway, all of that's like really quite complicated and hard to figure out when you're going to offend someone by not referring to whom and the rules don't, uh, they're, they're more about some kind of social hierarchy than they are about anything like intellectual causation. I would just say that, um, you know, there's a continuum of where you would, you know, draw the line in terms of what situations call for giving of credit or, you know, acknowledging sources. Uh, I, I think just that if you go all the way to one extreme of saying nobody ever needs to acknowledge any credit, then I think we can all see how that is a bad equilibrium. So, uh, so we've we've decided to go away from that extreme. Uh, then the question of how far to go. Uh, you know, I acknowledge that basically, you know, so basically if you just read someone's paper and then just copied it all and said it again with plagiarism, in a direct plagiarism, we all agree that that's a pretty bad scenario. If, if, if everybody finds that to be okay, uh, we would be in a bad equilibrium. So, so we, we, you know, we can all agree that we, we want a norm against that. And now we're going down a spectrum and as we move down, we are looking at cases where it gets harder to search to find what other people have done or where the mapping between how they express something and how you express something becomes larger. And then it becomes more a question of whether it really is the same thing. I, you know, I can see arguing about those issues, but the idea that we, we shouldn't even complain if someone just completely whole, you know, whole hog plagiarizes what somebody else says and takes credit for it themselves, it seems hard to argue that we are overly, you know, burdening ourselves by disapproving of that. I don't think we have any intellectual complaint against such a person. We have other kinds of complaints because we're not merely intellectual creatures. But as far as the product of learning and knowing goes, I think that's fine. But can I, I I want, I want, there's, we only have like a little bit of time left. And I just want to ask you more about sort of intellectuals. And I've somehow let us get distracted onto this topic that we've already discussed about credit. So um, I want to ask more about activism. Um, So one thing is like, you think it's sort of more okay if the activist chooses their topic by way of their activism, but not if they choose their conclusions, 
right? Not if the conclusions are, let's say, a foregone conclusion, right? And I want to talk to you about whether you think that that's substantially different from what happens in my field. Um, because in my field uh, of ancient philosophy scholarship, I'm going to let you in on a secret. Uh, the conclusions are chosen in advance. Here's how Plato and Aristotle have to turn out to be right about everything. It's it's super weird. It's sort of creepy right. when you first enter this space, right? right? But it's like, I'm working on a passage. I'm going to interpret a passage somewhere in Aristotle. And I can tell you in advance, if this is like a scholar, they're going to come out there. It, it's going to turn out that it was kind of true. Um, and they're going to keep working at it till they can find some, some kind of good point, some kind of good truthful point that Aristotle's making. So the moral of the story is going to be Aristotle was right, or Plato was right, or Socrates was right. This is not... Um, uh, this is not a universal historical fact about the field of ancient philosophy scholarship. So if you go back to like, I don't know, 1940, 1950, it's not true, but it's true now. So um, so from your point of view, is this just like the worst kind of like, it's just as bad as activism? Um, uh, what they would say is, look, we're being charitable, right? We're trying to do charitable interpretation. Uh, and so we're trying to, it's not that interesting if Aristotle's wrong, we're going to figure out how he was right. Uh, and I just wonder, yeah, how do you think about this as compared to activism? So there's a standard literature on lying, which says that like common social lies are not harmful if everyone knows they're common social lies. <laughs> that is, we mm. all just reinterpret them and go on our way. So harmful lies are the lies, more harmful lies, the lies that we can't anticipate and therefore don't know necessarily are lies. Mm -hmm. So if you told me that everybody who ever reads these articles all knows this fact, then few people will be misled by the fact that they all are constrained to draw the conclusion that Aristotle and Plato were always right. And then you could still maybe learn something from their best guess to try to figure out a way to make them right. But I would guess that, in fact, some people reading things, these things don't know this convention, because you told me it was a secret, would suggest that you didn't know it always, and it, it took you a time to figure yeah. out, in which case... It took me a while to figure out. <laughs> okay, in which case... I figured out the hard way by trying to argue that Aristotle was wrong about something, and people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> right, so, so, yeah. so that seems to me, uh, you know, yes, criticize, reasonably criticizable as being uh, there, being biased, basically, in a, in a way that you can point out to them and they refuse to stop. So, I mean, we can be more forgiving of people who find themselves influenced by some activist agenda, but unknowingly, and when it's pointed out to them, we'll apologize and, and reverse. But if they consist on pursuing it, then I think that's true. So I would give you another example in, in the field of economics. We, we often see sort of arrangements of the world where we have certain policies that look puzzling, like, say, blackmail. And say, for example, the analysis of blackmail says that doesn't look like such a bad policy. The simplest analysis says we, sh we should allow blackmail. And of course, we don't. And so the convention is there must be a reason why the status quo is a good thing. And so everybody struggles to find explanations to justify the status quo, as opposed to perhaps yeah, yeah. recommending to change the status quo. And I think that's also misleading because many people who read these papers don't realize that there is such a strong tendency to try to justify and explain the status quo as opposed to critiquing it. Good. I often do that in argument with you. I'm trying to justify the status quo. Indeed. Uh, so, um, um, <clears throat> um, so if we think of activism, I mean, so one question about the activism activist, um, uh, is just, at a certain point, if there was enough of it, like if it was sort of really, really clear that anyone doing research on say race or gender has to like get certain sorts of results, then you would no longer object to it because everybody would know. It well, would I might like object the to the waste of resources. Lies. That is, if, if you're going through the motions and you're gonna get a certain conclusion anyway, why bother to go through the motions, right? You're still gonna be waiting because you must be doing that for some pretense. Somebody's being fooled. Somebody thinks that these motions could have led somewhere else. That's why you're going through these motions. And so that suggests you are, in fact, misleading people. Well, no, I mean, it could just be like there's a certain ritual that we we all get to go through to like show that we trust each other. Like just like the credit. I think the credit thing is just a waste of resources that doesn't contribute to the pursuit of knowledge. Right. But clearly people really like it and it helps them keep doing the thing. So, OK, maybe we need to keep going with it, even though it's a bit of a waste of resources. Um, 
Um, so uh, so you, you might end up in that situation. And in fact, we're sort of close to that situation with uh, activism, right? Uh, so, it may, it may, we may be closer there than with the Plato and Aristotle scholarship. So again, we should just distinguish scenarios that are worse or better. And so the worst ones can be more, more worthy of criticism. Uh, the, the worst scenario is if you allow your activist uh, you know, priorities to influence the conclusions in a way that you don't acknowledge and that people mostly don't even know. And therefore you are fooling people or misleading them. If everyone knows that you are, you know, leading to that conclusion, that in some sense, that's an implicit assumption in the analysis. Now you're not fooling people, but you might be wasting people's time. Um, that's even less of a problem. That is, you know, you might it's basically I'm assuming certain things and I'm going from there and many kinds of analysis make assumptions. So if you say, I'm going to make the following assumption, which is congenial to my ideology or activism priorities, and then see where that goes, the rest of us can see that, you know, we might trust your conclusions conditional on that assumption, uh, but maybe we'd be interested in other assumptions. I, I think, you know, it's more problematic if you say nobody in this field is allowed to ever make contrary assumptions. Uh, because, you know, in all fields, people have to make some judgments about what the most likely facts are and most likely situation. They're mostly going to be making their analysis conditional on what they accept as the most likely facts about the world or situations, but they should be open to other people trying out alternatives. So this is going to be a weird contrast, but I'm sometimes inclined to contrast activism with pacifism. <laughs> Where, like, in effect, the activist sort of thinks that on some level we're at war. They're very worked up about some particular problem, right? And they just think a lot of other things need to be sacrificed to the pursuit of this problem. Just like during a war, you know, there may be a lot of stuff that you're not allowed to do that you're usually allowed to do, right? Um, and everyone needs to kind of be on the same page and we all need to show our loyalty because we're fighting the enemy, right? And I think of intellectuals kind of as pacifists. And so the intellectual and the activists are temperamentally like very different, right? And, 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 and it's not, it, it's sort of like the activist is more inclined to see battle lines having been drawn and more inclined to say like, look, we don't have the luxury for your, let me look for a different point of view on this, right? Uh, at the moment we're at, we're at war against say racism or something, right? Um, and that, you know, insofar as you're going to sort of bleed out the intellectual project into doing useful things, like what well, we think knowing and learning is useful, they might be like, yeah, knowing and learning is sort of sometimes useful under some circumstances, right? But now is not the time for your knowing and learning or this area here where we're fighting a war is not the time and place. The way to do useful things in this area is to get with the program and fight the battle. And insofar as you're not willing to create something like a kind of sacred space, a holy space, where like, no, our goals are knowing and learning. We don't have other goals. Other goals are not okay in this space. You're not really allowed to care about credit. We can make a concession, but we have to make a face when we make the concession because it's kind of kind of dirtying our special holy purity. Um, unless you do that, like, why not sometimes promote useful lies? And why not not only promote useful lies, but have norms that say, praise people for having promoted the useful lies if they were actually useful? I, I would say, uh, you know, it's completely reasonable to say that there are times when certain sort of topics shouldn't be explored or certain sort of topics who the people who know about that shouldn't be telling other people what they know. You might say, you know, knowing how to make nuclear weapons cheaply or other sorts of dangerous knowledge. Uh, but then I think you should just say we're forbidding people from studying the following thing or at least talking in public about it. And then what you're doing is just reducing the scope of this project of let's know and learn things together. So um, mm -hmm. there are many ways in the world that people know and learn things uh, other than this shared project of being intellectual or academic. Uh, this is one of the many ways we know and learn things together. And you might say that this shared project should at times be limited, uh, but I would much rather it be limited than polluted. That is, I'd much rather you um, said, we're not going to allow that for now. Or we just need to stop this sort of inquiry here. Uh, but if you, if you allow it to appear to be knowing and learning, but actually make it into 
activism without acknowledging that, then, you know, you are polluting our brand. So, you know, as somebody with a community with a brand, which we are trying to manage, I would rather you just told us to stop doing the thing you acknowledge we can do well if you allow us, rather than messing with the thing we're doing and then complaining we don't do a good job. So, like, I mean, I think that the idea of pollution here is very, it's a very helpful word, right? In thinking about, there's a, there's a, there's as a phrase you've used, a sacred quest, right? The, the intellectuals are on a sacred quest to know and learn. And then um, in some ways, their pursuit of those goals is going to be inhibited by the fact that they're just selfish humans, right? And uh, what I want to know is, what is sort of the principle you use um, to say, well, certain forms of, I consider pollution, namely um, doing this kind of credit allocation um, uh, to satisfy people's non-intellectual desires uh, for status, right? That that we have to accept that and, and, and you're not even going to count it as pollution, right? Versus, look, we're going to have to do a bit of lying as intellectuals. Humans lie. They lie all the time. It's just part of who we are. And like some of the ways in which we lie is sometimes we'll pick our conclusions in advance and like, we're not a hundred percent, you know, but like we, we, we mostly, we're mostly still doing this thing, but intellectuals since forever have probably done some of picking their conclusions in advance so as to please the group. You know, if you read Hobbes's Leviathan, many people think he's really an atheist, but he's not going to come out and say that because then he'll get his head chopped off. And so he's got to give some conclusions to make the, you know, to make his uh, social life uh, continue. And that intellectuals have always been doing that and they continue to do it. And they especially do it on certain topics. So imagine that you and I were astrologers and astrology worked but it was contested. Many people out there complained that astrology didn't work. And so you and I were struggling to sort of get the world to believe that we could in fact be effective astrologers and that it was possible to do that. Uh, so we would be trying to create this brand. And when people came us, asked us astrology questions, we tried to give them accurate answers and, and satisfied customers. And you could imagine say, the CIA comes to us privately and says, one of these customers is a foreign representative and we want to screw them. <laughs> and we want you to help us screw them. And you can imagine like two different ways they could ask us to do that. One way they could say, we don't want you to help them. Like if you use your astrology to help China or something, that's going to be hurting us. And so we just don't want you to help them. And I think it would be more okay for us to say, okay, we've decided that even though we can do astrology, we won't use astrology to help the Chinese. A different thing the CIA could come to do is say, pretend to do astrology for them, but just give them the wrong answers. And that will mess with them. And I, and I might think, yes, that might mess with them, but that will reduce our ability to convince the world that we actually have an effective product here. The more that you want us to go mess with you know, our reliable, useful product, to make it look bad for some customers, you know? So similarly, like you might say, if we had a restaurant and we were trying to convince people we had a, a good food and you said, CIA comes and says, poison this customer, give this customer food poisoning. Uh, that would be, you know, at risking our reputation for having a restaurant where we don't poison our customers. And we might be much more reluctant to help them out in that way than if the, the CIA says, don't serve that customer. Those customers should not be allowed in your restaurant because that wouldn't threaten our attempt to show that we can do a thing and convince the world that we have this capacity. So that's the sense in which I'm thinking of this intellectual community. I want this community to be capable of knowing and learning and when allowed to do that effectively. And I would rather that you just simply told us to stop in certain cases or prevented us from applying our abilities in some cases, then that we, that we mislead people and pretend like we're still doing that, but in fact, not actually do it. Good. I think that's a good analogy. Um, maybe I'll say one thing and then you can reply and then we should stop. Uh, so I think that 
um, you can imagine two different restaurants, right? One kind of restaurant is saying, look, all we do is give you good food. We just, we try to give you good food and like you take it from there, whether you're going to, that's going to improve your life or not improve your life, whether it's going to improve the political situation of our country or not. Right. We're just, we're just, we're not interested in anything beyond the fact that this is good food that we're putting before you. Right. And that restaurant with that brand, I would expect them to resist in just the way you've described where they're like, no, we're not going to, poison or like give, we won't even give yucky food to that people, those people. Cause our brand is that we give yummy food and we're going to give everyone yummy food regardless of the consequences. Um, but there'll be another restaurant and they say, we are the useful food restaurant. That is, we don't just give you food here. The food, the tastiness of the food is analogous to like truthfulness and honesty and knowledge, right? What we try to do is we try to give you food and thereby make the world a better place, right? And now the government comes to that restaurant and they're like, look, we know you really care. You're really committed to improving the world. And it's going to really improve the world if you poison or give bad food to these people. I, I no longer know what uh, your argument is going to be back against that government. And that's why I'm inclined to say that the intellectuals, it's more natural to think of them as pacifists, as people who are fundamentally interested in learning and knowing and not fundamentally interested in being useful. So I would say um, it's a large world uh, where people have to specialize and we each kind of profession specialist needs a brand for what our product is. And I think the fundamental purpose of specializing is you know, best served by us having very simple, easy to understand brands that people can directly check on. So I would think that the best version of that for intellectuals is that when I tell you, when I pick a problem and then I produce an analysis on that, uh, you can trust that and conditional on the assumptions I tell you about and the problem I picked, I'm giving you sort of the, the most accurate, neutral um, answer that I can. And that's what I do as, as an intellectual. And that, that should be definitely core to our brand. Now, if you ask me a question about what's important, and that's the question that you pose, then I should speak about what's actually important because that's the brand on that topic. So because intellectuals can be asked what's important, we should therefore use that same sort of neutral honesty to answer that question as best we can. Uh, but the reason why we all are in the world in our various specialties is mostly because we each think the world is better off if our specialty, in fact, achieves its brand promise. Uh, the people who work at restaurants think the world's better off if they promise to have tasty food, and they do. And auto repair places, you know, will want to promise that they repair autos, and they do. And intellectuals are promising that given a problem we tackle, we are trying to give the most honest, accurate answer that we can on that. And that's what we should do there. Okay, I know I said you had the last thing, but I want to say one more thing and you can still respond. Okay, so um, this idea that you think specialization is important and it's part of the creation of the brand, right? I wonder if that's not intention with your idea of saying to people, what's the most interesting question in your field? Because specialization is not just by field, right? Most people specialize within subfields and even within sub subfields. And so when like what you should really be asking them is what is the most interesting question within your sub, 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 sub field that is most narrowly construed? Are you working on that? And I think people then would say yes. So if you ask me, like my last academic paper that I wrote, it was on a kind of controversy about Plato's hippiest minor. Okay. It's a, it's a short dialogue, not considered a super, it's not one of the top five dialogue, platonic dialogues, right? But I'm interested in it. I like it. I've specialized a little bit in learning about this dialogue, right? So even among Plato specialists, I've specialized a bit. And then you're like, you know, in your paper that you wrote on the hippiest minor, were you addressing the most important and most interesting question about the hippiest minor? I would say absolutely yes. That is what I did, right? And I, I suspect that that's going to be true of all the academics you talk to. They are addressing the most important, most interesting question in their field. But, th but by field, we now have to understand that this has involved like a lot of different layers of specialization. Right. So um, whenever a client and a professional have an interaction, the client and the professional negotiate a scope of the interaction. So um, if you have a financial consultant and you go to them and say, I just got a bonus, where should I invest it? 
if that's the scope of your question, they can either push back and say, that's not the good question. I think we should address this other larger question. But if they accept the scope of that question, then they should do their best job within that scope. Um, but if they have been given a wide scope, then they are responsible for addressing the wide scope. If you go to the financial consultant that says, please help me just manage my finances, and all they tell you about is like which bank account to put your savings in, and they don't address lots of other big financial issues you have, I might say they are failing to do their job. They are failing to uh, you know, look at the most important thing within the scope that their client assigned them. So then I might say, what is the scope that our clients are assigning us as intellectuals for the scope of our task and projects? And I would say any one person, for example, who is a graduate student in a particular department taking a class, if they're assigned to do a research paper for that class, they will have to do it within the scope of that class. But later, as their career progresses, they are given wider scope for choosing projects and topics, and they are then responsible for choosing within that wider scope the most appropriate thing. If, if you take your car to an auto repair place and they focus on the headlight that could be slightly adjusted and they miss the fact that your brakes are broken and that you know the air conditioning doesn't work and a bunch of other things and they hand back it to you with the headlight fixed, they're failing in their job because you might have, if you gave them the task of what's wrong with this car and fix it, then that's the scope of their task. If they complain about your curtains in your house, you would might say, no, that wasn't the scope of your task. You were supposed to tell me about this car. But I think we intellectuals are actually typically given a pretty wide scope of task by our customers, uh, our students, our funders, et cetera. They typically ask us more widely to say, you know, what's interesting? What's important? What should I know? And then we are responsible for answering that question at that scope. Okay, I'm going to let it stop there. Um, All right. Uh, nice talking. <laughs> yep. Till we meet again.